0: Alright folks, Acts chapter 7, I don't know if you've picked up on it yet or not, but in this series we're going about 400 miles an hour and then parking in one place and that's kind of going to happen this morning to, to a degree. I'm actually going to uh, begin back in Acts chapter 6 and just kind of share with you what, what the context is of, of, our, of our, um, our scripture this morning. So, Acts chapter 6, we're on page 1702 if you're using a UBC Bible. Uh, Acts chapter 7, I'm sorry. Acts chapter 7. Um, so just to lay the context for you. Um, so you, you get to Acts chapter 6. You've just, you remember we, we went over it last week. You just had Peter and the, uh, the apostles standing before the council and saying, we're, we're going to follow you no matter what. And, and they're, they're, they're going to continue to preach and teach in the name of Jesus no matter what. They were rejoicing over the fact that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Christ. So that, that, that's something that we could wrestle with. And then you get to chapter six, and, and the church continues to grow and great things are happening. You get to chapter six, and you have this really strange thing happen. You have the church that now has to deal not with persecution, not with difficulty, but with success and, and I, this is true, we oftentimes deal with difficulty and hardship a lot better than we do success, partially because we're on our game when it's difficult, so we're keeping a watchful eye and being aware. When things are going smooth and well, we, we're just kind of like, yep, whatever, we got this, and then disaster occurs. Well, you get to chapter 6, and the church has grown so much that a complaint has arisen from the Hellenistic widows because uh, they are being neglected in the daily service. And so, The apostles gather, and they're praying about how they should handle this, and they don't want to be taken from the study of the Word and prayer. And so, they appoint seven men to to help them in in dealing with the the difficulty of success, quick growth, and the inability to meet the actual needs of the people within the church. And so, these seven men who are named in verse 5, who were full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. You got Philip, and Procurus, and Acanor and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, and a proselyte of Antioch. They sat before the apostles, they prayed, and they laid their hands on them. The Word of God continued to increase, so the, the, the response, the result of doing the good, hard, right thing in the middle of success is continued success in God's eyes. And so that's what they did. So now Stephen, one of the seven men who I actually skipped when I was reading, but Stephen is one of the guys who's named, and Stephen begins this life of ministry where he's full of grace and power. He's doing great wonders and signs among the people, and he's, he's kind of out in the community, and then he's being accused by many of breaking the, the Mosaic law. Verse 11, we've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God and they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and they came upon him and they seized him and they set up some false witnesses who said, man, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place talking about the temple and the law and so they had him arrested. And the high priest looks at Stephen in chapter seven, verse one and says, so is this true? Are you speaking against Moses? And what Stephen does, without taking all the time this morning, running through his entire message, I just want to hit the highlights so that you understand what the message of Stephen is in this moment. He's being accused of speaking against Moses, and that's a no-no when it comes to this time. Hebrews never spoke against Moses. He was the one that brought the law and was the mouthpiece of God and led them out of captivity. And so what Stephen does in an expert way is he goes way back at the beginning and he says, let me explain our history to you. Like, they don't know the history. But he said, let me explain the history to you. And he says, all right. So, God made a promise to Abraham. And they're probably like, oh, we know. Similar to you, who are sitting here now like, this is like the fifth time he started at Abraham in the messages. But it's important. So, Stephen says, it started back at Abraham when God had given him a promise for a land and a people. He had called him out of his home. And when he had left, God eventually gave him a land. And Stephen's comment is, it's the land we're in right now, boys. And, and, you know, the high priests and the Sanhedrin had to have been like, well, absolutely, we, we, we agree. Continue. I think I will. And he says, now about the people. Let's talk about the people. You know Abraham had no children. And so time went on and time went on and time went on until the birth of Isaac. And then Isaac had Jacob. And Jacob had the 12 patriarchs, the 12 sons of Jacob. And, and they're like, yes, we agree there's the patriarchs. That's fine. And the patriarchs, verse 9... Jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. Now, they wouldn't disagree with that at all. So, really, what he says is, guys, walking through our history, I just want to point this out. We have the 12 patriarchs, which are a result of the promise God made to Abraham that I would not only give you a land, but I would give you a people, right? So, you've got the 12 patriarchs. And of those 12 patriarchs, they looked at their little brother Joseph and they were like, that kid drives me crazy. How many of you have a little sibling? Raise your hand. How many of you get that? Raise your hand. Parents, you can raise your hand, too. And your kids are going to be like, Mom, I thought I was your favorite. Um, In reality, a little bit of sibling rivalry makes sense. This went a whole nother level of rejection. I got an idea. Let's push them in a hole. All right, you don't have to raise your hand. (laughs) Yeah, see, I'm guessing you're familiar with the old push them in a hole trick. But they take it to the next step. And now they sell him into slavery. I don't think many hands are going up on that one. The patriarchs, the founding fathers, sold one of their own into slavery. You think they rejected him? Absolutely. Jealous of Joseph, they sold him into Egypt. But you know the story, right? God worked in Joseph's life to such a degree that when Joseph continued to climb the the ranks in all of the places he was placed in, it got to the place where it just so happened there was a famine in the world, and it just so happened that Joseph had been prepared for the famine, and it just so happened that Joseph's brothers ended up coming to him to ask him for some some grain because the famine had removed all the food, so they were starving to death, and it just so happened that they didn't recognize Joseph, and it just so happened that Joseph's like, it's them, right? Right? Who delivered the patriarchs of Israel from their time of greatest need? Joseph did. The one they had rejected. Subtle or not so subtle, what Stephen is doing is saying, You're accusing me of something. Let me walk through our history for you and point some things out. There were these patriarchs. Absolutely. They sold Joseph into slavery. Absolutely. They rejected Joseph. Certainly, Joseph saved them. Hold on. Oh, but let me me continue. Then they go to the story of Moses after the children of Israel had been in Egypt for some time. And now the the Israelites, the Hebrews, are now slaves to the Egyptians. Moses is born. Somewhat out of miraculous circumstances that Moses was still alive after some time. All the baby boys should have been killed. So Moses is born. He grows up and he lives within the, the household of Pharaoh, and then he begins to um, mingle with his family, his Hebrew brothers and sisters, it says in verse 23 of chapter 7, he came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And in that visit, it says this in verse 24, seeing one of them being wronged. One of his Hebrew brothers was being attacked by an Egyptian. He defended the oppressed man, and he avenged him by killing the Egyptian. So, Moses rescued One of his Hebrew brothers, by killing the Egyptian to get him out of the picture And verse 25 is very interesting. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand. He thought, they're going to get it for sure. I'm going to watch out for them. I'm going to take care of them. I'm going to cover their backs for them. But it says what at the end of verse 25? They didn't understand. The following day, he comes upon two of his Hebrew brothers who are fighting, and he walks into the middle and says, man, your brothers, why do you wrong each other? The man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside and said, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Oh, I get it. Do you want to kill me like you killed the Egyptian yesterday? Moses flees. Not so subtle point by Stephen. Listen, listen, listen. you got to understand. Moses tried to deliver his brothers, and they rejected him. And now he's gone for 40 years, and you know the story how Moses sees the, the burning bush, and it doesn't consume itself, and, and God speaks to him from the burning bush and sends him back to Egypt, back to his, his Hebrew brothers, and he, he begins to head back 40 years later. He leads his brothers and sisters out of Egypt. It's this amazing time. Obviously, God is leading him. He is the 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 mouthpiece and the figurehead to his brothers and sisters, he's leading them through the wilderness. And how did they respond to the one who led them out of captivity? Verse 35, they rejected him saying, who made you a ruler and a judge? You know, the man that God had sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. Who made you a ruler and judge? They brought Moses in He follows, he leads, they follow, verse 39. Our fathers then refused to obey him. They pushed him aside, and in their hearts, they turned back to Egypt. Moses, who had come in and not saved the day, but led them and following God, now is being thrust to the side. And Stephen says, See, not only did you reject him when he tried to stand up for the individual one, but now he's leading the entire nation. You're like, No, we're good. See this calf? It just jumped right out of the fire most amazing thing ever. So, you rejected Moses as well. He continues his message. He gets to the place of verse 51 by telling them, you're doing it again. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and in ears, you are always resisting the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did throughout history, rejecting Joseph, rejecting Moses, rejecting Moses again, as your fathers did throughout all of history, so do you. So which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and whom you have now murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels, but you didn't keep it. Guys, you're doing it again. So, it's very interesting that Stephen, being put on trial for his life, begins the, the closing arguments of his defense with, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised, and heart and ears. That's just going to buy you some trouble, isn't it? But Stephen was all in. And the response of the Sanhedrin is crazy. The response of the Sanhedrin is a response you would expect to see in one of our children's rooms over here. Look at verse 54. When they heard these things, they were enraged. They ground their teeth at him. I mean, that's like, you got to be kidding me. Continue. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, he just gazed into heaven. He saw the glory of God and Jesus standing by the right hand of God, and he said this, Behold... The heavens, I see them as opened, and the Son of Man is standing on the right hand of God. And they cried out with a loud voice, and they put their fingers in their ears, and they rushed together at him. Okay, time out. I've been in some controversial business meetings, a couple of crazy meetings at church sometimes, even in the corporate world. I've never seen somebody get to the place of anger where they start going, Argh! That's what Stephen gets. Stephen's, again, I don't want to read into it, but Stephen's got to be like, okay. They cried out with their loud voice. They put their fingers in their ears. They rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. It's kind of an ironic thing, just in case you were wondering. They didn't want to keep him in the city because, well, that would make their city unclean if they killed him in the city. So instead, they dragged him to the outskirts of the city. They brought him out of the city. And the witnesses, kind of an aside, but it's an interesting one that Luke throws here, the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And they began to stone Stephen. So in this moment, the conclusion of his testimony, at the conclusion of his, we'll call it a trial because I don't know what else you would call it, Stephen is dragged outside the city. Stones are being thrown at him. The people are angry. They're freaking out <clears throat> because they're hearing something they don't want to hear. And what we get to see in this moment are the dying words of Stephen. So I did a little poking around just because it was really interesting um, once I, I kind of got oh, overwhelmed by this passage. And you'll understand that in a little bit, I'm sure. So I looked up some of the dying words of some people, and what I found was, was, was interesting. So just a, a drummer named Buddy Rich, some of you musicians would be familiar with him back in the late 70s, early 80s. He was known as the best drummer in the entire world at the time. He's being prepared for surgery. He actually died after this surgery. He's being prepared for surgery, and a nurse asked him, you know, as they run through the list, she said, is there anything you can't take? And his response was, yeah, country music. But actually, it's interesting that that was Buddy Rich's dying words. Percy Granger was an Australian composer who, who, with his dying words, looked at his wife Ella and said, "You're the only one I like." That one's kind of romantic and a bit of a sting at the same time. Adoniram Judson, who was the missionary to Burma, said, "I." I go with the gladness of a boy who is bounding away from school. Richard Baxter, who was a Puritan leader, said this, I have pain, but I have peace. I have peace. Polycarp, one of the ancient church leaders and early church leaders, um, upon being martyred, was given one final chance to recant and to renounce the name of Christ. And his response was this, for 86 years I have been his servant. He has done me no wrong. How could I blaspheme my king who has saved me? The dying words of an individual are significant. Look at Stephen's. Verse 59 of chapter 7, as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. The dying words of Stephen are are not just about how courageous he was in the face of death and how he was willing to stand so strong in those final moments. The dying words of Stephen, and in fact, the dying words of all these individuals that I read earlier, the dying words of those individuals really, it's an overflow of how they lived. What's coming out of them is what they've lived like their entire life. That's, that's who they are. And so it makes sense that that would be their dying It makes sense, as ridiculous as it is, that Buddy Rich's final words would be, I just can't stand country music. It makes sense if you knew Buddy Rich. People who knew Stephen would be like, that makes sense because that's who he is. And, and here's, here's the thing. When I'm prepping for this series and I get to this point, I'm like, all right, so i got to come up with a what if, a what if. And I'm reading this, I'm like, man, what if, what if we were willing to die for Jesus? but that's not the point. For a couple of reasons, let's be honest, most of us will never have to die for Jesus. So instead, maybe the point is this. What if we were willing to live for Jesus? What if we were really willing to live for Jesus? What what would that what would that look like? What did it look like for Stephen? Well, when his first words, his, his final words, come out of his mouth and he begins with, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit, there, there, it seems for us to be not anything super significant until you understand where that phrase comes from. That phrase comes from Psalm 31, verse 5, that says, This, into your hand I commit my spirit. You've redeemed me, O Lord, my faithful God. Okay, that's still like, okay, it's a beautiful verse, it's wonderful. We know Jesus said that on the cross, that's wonderful, but it's more than that. See, this prayer, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit, is filled with incredible simplicity because that was the bedtime prayer of Hebrew children. Now I lay me down to sleep, I pray the Lord my soul to keep. Should I die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. A little creepy. Any of you that know Tim Hawkins are doing it in your head right now, that's all right. We had one in college about, now I lay me down to rest, a pile of book upon my chest. Should I die before I wake? It's one less test I'll have to take. Um, <laughs> similar, somewhat similar. The prayer of the Hebrew kids would be exactly this. Lord, into your hands I commit my spirit. Into your hands I entrust my soul, my being. I mean, the profound simplicity of these words of Stephen, the, the profound simplicity of the prayer is something that reminds us that in every circumstance and situation, God is trustworthy. God is trustworthy. So how do you live like God is trustworthy? Maybe, maybe a picture will help. I like pictures. When you're driving in a car with your 17-year-old son who just got his license, right? I mean, he's not, he's already passed the test. Test, schmest, who cares? This kid's going to kill us all. There's that feeling. But when you're six, and you're driving in a car and daddy's behind the wheel, there's no second thought. They they, they create their own universe in the back seat while you're driving on a trip. They are oblivious to everything going on because daddy's at the wheel. That's what it looks like to live like God is trustworthy. It looks like The smallest of munchkins, and I got to do it this morning, the smallest of munchkins running up and jumping into your arms. And you get to hold them as a daddy, and a little little, tiny guy. They're not thinking, oh, he's going to drop me. When we bought our first home, I remember trying to pick Steph up and carry her over the threshold, because that's what you're supposed to do in your first home, right? And Audrey was there. Audrey thought it was hilarious. Stephanie, not so much. I don't know why she didn't trust these hulking muscles. Um... But there was a little fear and anxiety in her heart when I hoisted her over my shoulder and started running through the door. And there should be. <laughs> but a baby being carried in daddy's arms, why would I fear? Daddy's got me. See, that, that living like God is trustworthy really is childlike Faith. And childlike faith, against what we often are led to believe, childlike faith isn't an immature faith. It is a profound faith. It's deep. It's, it's trusting. Man, I can fully rest in Daddy because he's driving. I can fully rest in the arms of Daddy because he's carrying me. I can fully rest in God's hands because he is trustworthy. Jesus, it's in your hands. is more than just words. So so the world we live in right now is like the ocean, and every day, the waves of depravity just seem to get bigger and bigger and bigger, And, and let's be honest, many of those waves are our own. And so it's like the child who is standing just knee deep and the waves are coming and just crashing. I don't know if you, being at the shore, I don't know if you've ever experienced that. We, we have with our kids. There was actually, I don't, I don't remember the details of the story. I just remember that one kid lost a pair of shorts in the process. It was big waves. Um... <laughs> But but as those waves come and hit you and knock you over, I mean, that's the life we live in. Those waves are just coming one after another after another, and we're, we're scraping on the bottom of that gritty floor of the ocean, just getting torn up, the rashes on your elbows, and, and when you go down after a wave hits you, I mean, it's scary enough, the bubbles and everything around you, but what's terrifying is you know what's next, another wave. And so so you, you're reaching up, trying to grab onto something or anything. You're trying to find the one that's just going to be like, hey, pull me out of this. And the very hand of God in all of its omnipotence and unrelenting strength is there to grasp out and pick you out of the waves, and he never lets go. So, hey, you know, I don't, I don't know where you're at. I don't know what you're wrestling with but there's something that's certain. No matter the difficulty, no matter the darkness, no matter the uncertainty of the circumstances, no matter what, his hand is always there. His hand will always be there. How did Stephen have the courage to die like this? It's because Stephen had the courage to live like this. How did Stephen have the ability to say what is next. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. So, just mentioning it and moving on. This choked me this week. Um, I said that a few times to a couple people this week who were praying for me. Forgiveness is um, its a hard thing, isn't it? And, and, and But the beautiful thing is that it's in God's word, and it's clear, and so regardless of how I feel about it or how successful I am at it, my responsibility this week was to pour myself into the word and let it beat me up left and right so that this morning I can stand here and lay before you what it is that God's word says about it, not, not how Frank practices it. And so as we look at God's word, what we find is this, forgiveness by its very nature is staggering here is stephen standing before the people not just responsible for his death but before the people who have stones in their hands and he says lord please forgive them don't hold this sin against them i mean we're we're all familiar with with people who've had to forgive what we would kind of categorize as unforgivable right but we're familiar with some horrible monster violates a family in some unspeakable manner. The, the hurt, it's real, it's painful, it, it crushes at the core of the family. And, and, and unfortunately, what really happens is most, most people choose hatred and anger, rage. Uh, most choose to condemn this monster. And, and honestly, come on, let's, let's not be judgmental. How can you not? How can you not look at at this lowlife who has done unspeakable harm to your family, to your loved ones, to yourself, and, and not have that hair in the back of your neck bristle? So, so in that context, as you understand that and, and contemplate that, I mean, really, it is forgiveness is like a lightning bolt coming out of nowhere. The, the story that gets me every time was um, back in 2006, just about an hour and a half north in Lancaster County, when... Um, Charles Rogers walked into an Amish school and, and shot and killed almost a dozen young girls. And, and it was unspeakable, it was horrific, it was, it was hard to watch. And then you find out, you start getting the story, what you find out is that many within the Amish community, let me, let me that's not true, let me get more specific. Parents of the girls who were killed showed up at the door of Charles Rogers' parents the day that their babies were killed by Charles Rogers, knocked on the door, and so when his parents opened the door, obviously in tears, standing before them was an Amish couple saying, listen, we know and we hurt with you, but we know you're going to be alone, so we want to come alongside you. What? The funeral of Charles Rogers was attended by more Amish than anyone else because they wanted to reach out in a spirit of forgiveness. And so when you see forgiveness in that light, it's it's staggering and it's hard, hard. um, And sometimes I think what happens is when we preach and teach, when you sit and you look at God's Word, you're like, forgiveness, okay, got to forgive, all right, here we go we don't want to make light of it. We don't want to make it simple. It's not simple. It's hard. It's difficult. How do you forgive the person who's violated you? How do you forgive the person who has broken your trust? How do you forgive the person who has hurt somebody that you love and love dearly? How do you forgive your enemies? How do you forgive, like Stephen did, the very ones who are determined to kill you How did Stephen do this? He did it because he had experienced forgiveness himself. I mean, think about this. What he says right here, again, are the very words of Jesus Christ on the cross. And so, think about it. Jesus looks to heaven and says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. Who was Jesus talking about? Maybe the better question is, who wasn't Jesus talking about? I mean, run the list. Was it his own disciples? I mean, think about it. Just, just earlier, he had just told his disciples that he was the fulfillment of the Passover and, and, and that he was the, the sacrificial lamb and there's going to be a betrayer, and he's pouring his soul out to them, and the disciples' response is to immediately begin arguing who's getting into the Disciple Hall of Fame. What? Are you not listening? The the disciples are the ones who He takes to pray, and they can't even stay awake. The disciples are the ones when the the soldiers approach to arrest Him, they take off. So, is He forgiving the disciples? Is He forgiving Judas specifically? I mean, think about it. When Judas comes to betray Him, He does it with a kiss, and the very words of Christ are painful daggers in the heart. With a kiss, Judas? Judas? Maybe he's forgiving Peter, who, who, who swore he would never deny Jesus Christ, and then even before the sun came up, he had denied him three times. Maybe he's forgiving the soldiers of the high priest who had beat him and mocked him and spit on him. Maybe he's forgiving the chief priest who had plotted to have him put to death. Maybe it's Herod, who is all excited, oh, I get to meet Jesus, he could do some magic tricks for me. And then when Jesus doesn't perform for him, he leads his soldiers in dressing him and mocking him and beating him more. Maybe Jesus is saying, Father, forgive the crowds as they chanted out, crucify him, and chose Barabbas, a murderer over Christ, the Messiah. Maybe Jesus is saying, forgive Pilate, who who wouldn't man up. He said, oh, he's innocent. I see no no guilt in him at all. But you know what? You do what you do. Maybe Jesus was, was forgiving the soldiers who had pierced his hands and his feet, who were casting lots for his garments at his feet who were mocking him. Maybe it was the the people who walked by at the cross and shouted out, man, if you're the son of God, then come on down. Who was it that Jesus was forgiving when he said, Father, forgive them? They don't know what they're doing. I mean, what, what we see in the story of Christ, what we read when we understand the gospel is that there are plenty of people in need of forgiveness. And none of them deserve it. Jesus Christ, the only one who didn't need forgiveness, died for those of us who are condemned without it. And Stephen had experienced that. Jesus Christ bore the sins of all mankind in his body on the tree. Oh, 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 but I wasn't there, Frank. It wasn't me. It was your sin that drove the nails. It was arrogance, arrogance. The challenge is his ability as God. It's your cowardice that runs from situations where we can declare he's Jesus, the son of God. It's our lack of backbone as we stand before the crowds that won't won't publicly admit what's right or wrong. It's our ridiculous self-importance that leads us to believe we're more important than anybody else in the room. It's our selfishness that sells out for 30 pieces of silver or maybe a promotion at work instead of clinging to and faithfully representing our Savior, Jesus Christ. It's our rebellion and refusal to believe him as he demonstrated time and time again that he came to save us and to save us from ourselves. It's our atheistic lifestyle, which it's not a clearly defined belief. It's just a a practical lifestyle where we live like he doesn't exist Monday through Saturday our full-fledged pursuit of the addictive way of life, whether that be addicted to alcohol or drugs or work or sex or porn. It's when we use people around us as stepping stones. It's abusing people around us in our anger. It's refusing to take responsibility for our choices, our sin, and instead blaming everyone and anything else, including God. You might not have been there. But it was your sins that drove the nails. We turned our back on God and spit in his face. How do you forgive your enemies? How do you forgive the very ones who have determined to kill you? How did Stephen do this? How did he live like this? Because he had experienced forgiveness himself. That long litany of points that long list of sins that held him to the cross were your sins and my sins. And and he was, uh, this amazing thing is that Jesus, perfect, innocent, sacrifice of God, laid himself on a cross so that you wouldn't have to. He took your sins in his body and he willingly went to the cross so that you could be saved from your sins. And so Stephen experienced that forgiveness. Have you experienced that forgiveness that is in Jesus and Jesus alone? Stop trying to earn your way to heaven. I mean, here's the problem. You don't have to be good to get to heaven. You have to be perfect. So unless you've got somebody else's perfection handed to you, you're in trouble. Good news. Jesus Christ not only took your sins from you and bore them in his body, but his perfection was given to you. May we confess with our mouths that Jesus is the Son of God. So, so, so may, may we do that today. That's the, the picture. So how, how do we forgive? It's by understanding what we've been forgiven. That, that's the story of Matthew 18. It's this genius. Again, it's Jesus. Of course it's genius. It's this amazing parable that Jesus tells in Matthew 18 where he lays out the story. And, and again, I think because guilty as charged. We're not students of the Word the way we should be. We miss the power of the story when we don't understand it. Jesus begins His parable with the people who are there, and He says, listen, the kingdom of heaven should be compared to a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. So, you know the story. Matthew 18, the king is taking an account, he's looking at his books, and he realized that one of his servants owes him some money, and so he's going to collect on his debts. How much money did this fellow owe him? 10,000 talents. What, no oohs and ahs? We don't know what a talent is. So let me, let me help you understand. 10,000 talents, here's the math. One talent equals about 20 years of wages. So do the math, this is crazy. You're talking about 60 million days of labor, Okay, how about this? It's working Monday through Sunday, seven days a week, for 164,000 years. I have no idea how this dude got into that much debt. I mean, he's like America. It's funny, the, the, the best way to understand this, 10,000 talents, we're like, hmm, we don't get it. Instead, let's apply some of our, our young person logic to this, Okay? Here it is. It's a big number. That's like a gazillion dollars. It's like a hundred gazillion dollars. It's money we can't even comprehend. And this king looks at his books, and he must be very wealthy, huh? This man owes me a hundred gazillion dollars sell everything he has, take his wife, take his children. He's going to pay me back. And the servant comes to him and falls on his face before the king and says, oh, oh, mighty king, oh, wonderful king, oh, merciful king, I I, I promise you I will do whatever I can. Please just be patient with me, and I will pay you back everything. No, you won't. It's impossible. It is literally impossible to pay back a hundred gazillion dollars. But that's his promise. You just be patient with me. And so the king knows that's not true, but for some reason, the king in his mercy looks down and says, you know what? You know what? Tell you what? Tell you what? what. Your debt forgiven. You don't have to pay me a dime. I got it. You just go on your way. Ah, Frank. So that's forgiveness, huh? Oh, it is. That's the forgiveness you and I have received through Jesus Christ. Extravagant, ridiculous, exorbitant. A hundred gazillions worth. Do you know the parable continues? As that servant who has just been forgiven this insurmountable debt, he goes and finds one of his co workers. Says, hey man, you owe me some money. Yeah, I ain't got it on me right now. You owe me a hundred denarii. Okay, so you guys should chuckle at that point, like, but let me explain that to you. A hundred denarii, a denarii would be one day's labor, so he owes him a hundred days labor. A hundred days labor. He's just been forgiven 164,000 years of working seven days a week, and he's going hard after one of his coworkers who owes him a hundred days labor. And his coworkers like, dude, I'm sorry, man. Just be patient. A little mercy. I promise. I will pay you back everything. I will definitely pay you back everything. I will pay it back in full. Just, just give me some time. Just be a little patient. And the fella's response is, absolutely not. Lock him up. Put him in the debtor's jail. What? how could you do that? And his fellow servants are are, are kind of taken aback. How how could you possibly do that? And they run and tell the king, and the king revokes his forgiveness and says, I'm sorry, buddy, uh, you don't get it. See, when you understand and have experienced what it means to be forgiven a hundred gazillion dollars, it's easy to turn around and forgive somebody a hundred bucks. When you understand the depth of forgiveness you've experienced through Jesus Christ on the cross, that's what drives and motivates your ability to forgive what others would look at as unforgivable. How did Stephen forgive these people? Because he understood the very goodness of God. He was reminded that the one who didn't need forgiveness died for those who are condemned without it. So, what if we would live like that? What if we were so aware of the grace that we've experienced by the hands of God that we were known as forgivers? What if we lived for Jesus in such a bold and courageous way that we remained steadfast because God is trustworthy? And we're forgivers because God is merciful and gracious to us in ways that we still can't comprehend. What if each one of us worked to forgive that person who is just beating up our conscience right now? The person whose face you can't get out of your mind. They may be somebody sitting in here right now. They may be somebody who used to sit in here. They may be a family member. They may be a neighbor. Forgiveness is a response to understanding the grace that you've experienced. I'm not saying it's easy, but it is necessary. That's what it looks like to live for Jesus. So, what if? What if this week we lived like that? Can we pray together?